Hi, everyone, and welcome to Writer Mother Monster. I'm your host, Lara Ehrlich. And before I introduce tonight's guest, I need to apologize for the bird sounds that you might be hearing throughout this episode. For anyone who's watching live or who watches the episode after the fact on YouTube, um, you will see, I'm going to lift my computer up for a second, that I have chickens brooding right behind my desk, which is also why I don't have my usual backdrop up. Um, and that is a story for another time. So anyway, <laughs> forgive the chicken noises. I'm regretting not having put them in another room at this moment. But our guest today is Leon Dolan. Leon is a writer and podcaster, the author of three best-selling novels, The Sweeney Sisters, Helen of Pasadena, and Elizabeth the First Wife. Her latest book, Lost and Found in Paris, was published in April 2022, this month, and is a Southern California indie bestseller. She's written regular columns for Pasadena Magazine, O Magazine, and Working Mother Magazine. So she's the perfect guest for Writer Mother Monster. She is the creator, producer, and host of Satellite Sisters, the award-winning podcast she created with her four real sisters. In 2017, Leanne was given the Podcast Pioneer Award by Women in Podcasting, and she graduated from Pomona College. She lives in Pasadena, California, with her husband, and has two adult sons. She describes writer motherhood in three words as controlled, compartmentalized chaos. And now please join me in welcoming Leanne. Hi. Oh, I love that intro. <laughs> Thank you. Made me laugh. Yes. 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 Controlled, compartmentalized chaos. It's all. Yeah. Tell me about that. As I <laughs> yeah. have chickens brooding behind me. Tell me about controlled, compartmentalized chaos. Well, I have my sons now are grown. Uh, Laura, they're 24 and 26. Um, but I've been a working mother for their entire lives. So mm-hmm. uh, working in creative fields, either writing, producing, writing, producing, speaking. And, um, I just learned to put things in little boxes that I could handle. Writing was a little box, you know, motherhood is the big box, but writing was compartmentalized and weird little hours and after hours and nap times and after they went to bed and then, you know, around their sports schedules and stuff. And, and the chaos was just something that, that happened that, that, you know, you couldn't really control. You couldn't control everything. And that's the chaotic part. I wish I could control everything. I struggle with that. And I also struggle with compartmentalization. So can you let's start there and just tell us a little bit about all of the different elements that that you compartmentalize as a working mother, as a creative mother, as a mother? What are all those pieces? And logistically, how do you compartmentalize? Right. right. So, you know, um, when my kids were little, we had started Satellite Sisters and it was a, a radio show. So it started first on public broadcasting, then moved to ABC. So at one point um, at ABC, we were on six days a week, three hours live. So each of us worked five of the six days. Uh, so we just we but we work Saturdays. Uh, you know, we all work Saturdays. And then I usually work Tuesday through Friday. And um, the only good thing, I mean, I love doing the show. 
I, I, I loved working with my sisters. I still do it. You know, I loved being able to interview guests. I loved every piece of it, but it was a huge boon that it was early in the morning. I'm an early morning riser and I could get like a big chunk of my prep work done between 5 a.m. and 7 a.m. And then like the kids would get up. There was a transfer of power over to my husband and I would go to the studio and then I would we would be on the air live nine to noon. And then I'd have two hours of post-production work, whatever that might be, uh, prepping for the next day. I, we were writing columns for O Magazine at that time and Working Mother Magazine. And I would just jam all that stuff into like my two hours post-production. And then I'd be home by like 2.30. So the afternoon I, and the early evening, I would spend with them. And then a lot of times, once they went to bed, I would go back to working. So, so I have to say, never really tried to... I mean, when I wrote and when I worked, I was always away from them. I never tried to try to do it all in the same room. That, I, I could not handle that. And I still use a lot of compartmentalization, like little chunks of time here and there that I do extreme focus on various different types of creative projects. Like now with fiction writing, very compartmentalized, you know, very different than producing the podcast. So that I do essentially, you know, five days a week from 9 a.m. to noon. I have more flexibility now that the kids are older, obviously, 9 to 2. But that's when I do it, super concentrated. So it's just something I kind of taught myself to do because you, you have no time to spare. You don't, you can't sit around and <laughs> do nothing for hours. You can't go to the coffee shop for an hour in the middle of the day. No, you got like two and a half hours to like crank something out. And so I learned to do that. Oh, yeah. Sounds very familiar. Okay. Do you... So I've heard others say that they write these things down. So it's sort of they have a calendar where they'll write like this hour from this hour is the time for fiction writing and so on. Do you keep it in your head just logistically because I'm going to learn from you here? Yeah. How do you hold yourself accountable to that compartmentalizing and the schedule that you say? Right. Right. Well, I do. I mean, I do write everything down and I have for a, a long time. I just use a basic calendar. I don't, I don't have any fancy apps. Uh, it's, uh, but, um, and mainly that was a trick I learned because I would have to schedule childcare. You know, you, and I was a big believer in telling the, my, my childcare person, this is exactly what I'm going to need you. And so then I would work around that. Uh, so it started with respecting somebody else's schedule. I think respect of the schedule is, is a lot of the key. It's your schedule. It's your children's schedule. It's your husband's schedule, your partner's schedule. It's just, it's the child care provider schedule. So, and then, you know, and then I, and then I very carefully craft a, a week where I can, where I can get everything done with me currently now. So essentially my work is, is producing and hosting Satellite Sisters podcast, which is a regular weekly show. Uh, we produce 48 episodes a year, which is a lot. Um, I do that Mondays and Tuesdays. I don't try to write fiction Mondays and Tuesdays because it's a very different head. But on Mondays and Tuesdays, I jam everything in that I have to do with Satellite Sisters. So that's booking guests and that's doing our production call and that's doing any of the social media. That's starting the weekly newsletter we do. Like those are two very full long days. And then we record the show on Tuesday. We repost it that day. You know, I have to. Uh, make sure the advertisers know that everything's out. I have to, you know, talk to the advertisers. And then Wednesday, now, now I'm on deadline for another book. So it's Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I write. <laughs> Not ideal to work seven days at the clock, but, uh, 
you have to get the book done. And so, and I have a contract. You know, I think money and respect are two excellent things that go hand in hand. When you sign a contract <laughs> and someone's paying you for the work, it's a lot easier to be more disciplined about it than if it's spec work, which is what so many creatives have to do. It's much easier to push that schedule out if it's on spec and no one is expecting it. Absolutely. Was your first book on spec? Yeah, my first three were on spec, really. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not ideal. Uh, but yeah, my first book was on spec. Um, I didn't take up writing fiction prose till I was 45. So, I mean, that was old. <laughs> I mean, and part of it was, I didn't have enough time. It takes a long time to write a, a hundred thousand word book. And, you know, I was doing this six day a week radio show and then all of a sudden I wasn't. Uh, because it, we were at ABC and Disney sold off the radio division. So it was really unemployment that freed up my time for a lot of writing, you know, <laughs> I'll be honest. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but then it's on spec and then you really have to force yourself to do it. But my kids were a little bit older. There was flexibility in the schedule. I could work during the day and I had already had that creative um, divide. It had that little compartment that used to be the radio show. And I plopped in, you know, the spec novel that I was writing. I mean, I treated it exactly the same. You know, spec work, paid work, it's all work. And that, again, respect the work, respect the schedule. Like, what you're doing is work. And and whether someone's paying you or not, hopefully someone will someday. Yeah, and I find that so, um, that resonates so much with me. Because I think the thing that can most easily drop off the plate or off the burner or whatever you want to call the the place where we ha- have all of our projects balancing together is the creative work that no one is waiting for or no one's paying you for. Right. Um, and I find when I have deadlines at work and my daughter is home for spring break and um, there are all of these other pressures that people will notice if I drop the ball on. That was a bunch of mixed metaphors, but you see what yeah. I'm saying. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the easiest thing to put down is my own writing because yeah. no one's waiting for me to finish a book. Right. So tell me about that period of your life and work where you were writing on spec and how you kept going, how you yeah. um, respected the work enough to continue moving forward, even if there were other things where you were you had more pressure to complete projects. Well, first, um, as the elder here, I would like to relieve you of all your guilt. So, <laughs> I thank you. I am. This is energy healing that I'm doing. I just, I just want you to know, like, you're not alone. You're not the first. You know, it wasn't. I didn't wait till I was 45 to write my first novel because I thought now's a, now I'm ready. I thought now I have time, and those are two totally different things. Uh, Absolutely. And so, you know, for years I was kind of chipping away at it, putting ideas into a file. It was never far behind in my head, but I, I couldn't get it done. I couldn't get it done with everything else. So, so, uh, you know, one, never beat yourself up for the work that you don't do. And, um, your career is long and your life is long and you'll find the time and the space for that. Um, but when I first started writing prose, I actually took an online fiction writing class because I had not written prose. And I thought, um, again, after losing my job and sitting around watching Sweet Home Alabama for like 10 years, uh, I, I mean, I was a couple of months. I was like, 
I got to get to work. So uh, it's actually when I, I decided to sign up for an online writing class. And I think that's a, that's a lot of accountability. You know, first of all, you're telling people you do it. So there's public humiliation as a motivator. Big believer in that. You know, you paid money, which at the time, you know, money was tight. And so if I was going to plunk down hundreds of dollars for this class, I was going to show up and do the work. Um, and then I met other people in the class that we then would form a writer's group. And that, that was almost all the accountability I needed. You know, that um, those three elements and, and desire really pushed, you know, pushed the project forward. Um, and that that was an ideal circumstance that in, in the sense that uh, there was a global financial crisis. <laughs> so a lot of people were out of work and I was in the media business. No one had any expectations that I was going to go get another six day a week radio gig because radio stations were collapsing. But I could really focus on it. And I just I was I had to reinvent my career. So there was a lot of pressure and I could could handle that. Now, and the second, and I, I finished the book in a year. I found a publisher, which was a little bit of a miracle, but I did. And the book came out and was a, uh, a really an unexpected hit here in Southern California and stayed on the LA Times bestseller list for a year. It was, it was about as good a publishing experience as you could have. Um, but the book that I'm out with now, Lost and Found in Paris, Laura, that took nine years to come out. You know, I started that in 2013. And um, after I'd already written two novels, I, I published a nonfiction a collection as well. And that one was just sometimes life takes over. You know, I was also writing it on spec. I was trying to move from my smaller publisher to a bigger publisher, which eventually I did. But at the time, like I had just lost both my parents. So I had to go through a grief process. I had kids I had to get, you know. I'm, I'm sorry to say that high school is also a very busy time for parenting in no. different ways. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, but like, I had to get kids into college and they, you know, I had to get kids through algebra two. I mean, my God, we're just not good at math, Laura, and that is hard. And so, um, so I had, I put that aside for years. So it's not always smooth sailing. I mean, life does interfere. But the one thing I will remember from my online writing class that my teacher said, and I pass along to you, is to get your novel finished, you have to give up something. So and sometimes that is a social life. You know, sometimes that is wine after dinner. You know, it, it's really like so you can work. I mean, it was very powerful to me because I'm like, oh, I get it. Yeah. No, I have to. can't like. I, yeah, I guess I could go to two yoga classes a day now that I'm unemployed, but no, I'm going to give that up and finish this book. It was a really simple trade-off of, I have to give up something to get this book done because those extra two or three hours a day are going to make all the difference. Oh yeah. No, I hear you. I haven't mm-hmm. exercised in years. <laughs> oh, <laughs> joke. <Yeah>. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. So you said that you, for your first book, you had been keeping notes um, and sort of um, not waiting for the opportunity, but like finally when you had that time where you could slot the book into where your podcast had been, it was time to write that novel. Had you always wanted to write fiction? Where did this I think, I, think I had. I mean, I always wanted to make up stories. So when I first moved to Los Angeles, my uh, I wasn't a writing major in college. I went to a school that didn't even have one at the time. So I was a classics major. I studied Greek and Latin, but I also, um, 
I had always loved storytelling. Uh, I wrote for the school newspaper. I, I did all kinds of creative things. And then, um, and then when I, uh, my first job out of school, I, I worked at Nike actually in their film and video department. And I started as a, just a, you know, the assistant to the executive producer there. Um, and that's when I figured out, Oh, I really like writing. Yeah. I, I like producing. I like putting things together. Now I was writing mainly about sports and sneakers and things like that because it was a footwear company, but, um, I really enjoyed that piece of it. I found out I was pretty good at producing, organizing things, getting things going, like, you know, making sure everything got done. I liked the creative aspect of it. And then um, then I moved to Los Angeles when I got married and I thought, oh, I'll be a screenwriter. So that's what I tried first before fiction was a couple of screenplays um, still unproduced. So call me if you know anybody. Um, but and, you know, uh, and that I, I, you know, studied and at the American Film Institute. I just took public classes. I wasn't getting an MFA. Um, anyone could sign up for these classes, but you know, the three act structure really stuck to me and, and I liked making up stories. I figured that out. And then we started doing satellite sisters. So that creative work kind of got put aside and I did a lot of essay writing and personal essays and columns, uh, humor columns for working mother and for O magazine. So I did a ton of writing, but this fiction just seemed like, Ooh, this next step, um, that, seemed pretty hard to me. And so that's why when I had this chunk of time, I took a class. I was like, okay, I think I have a story to tell. And I think it's actually a better story in a novel than in a screenplay. So, um, so, so that was the, that's the long answer to that. So yeah, I lo always love making up stories, but I really thought screenwriting was going to be where it was at for me. <laughs> it's an interesting transition though. And actually I feel like, so a long time ago, I, I took a playwriting class thinking that I was going to write plays and the lessons I learned about dialogue in a playwriting class have stuck with me. And the, um, the lessons from that course about making every line count. So people don't just sort of sit and have, well, in, in real life, they might have conversations that don't matter and don't go anywhere. But if someone's going to spend the time to sit and read your work, every sentence should have some sort of meaning and some reason for being on the page. So I can see how screenwriting could lead you into fiction. Tell yeah, me there's a lot of value in learning any kind of creative structure. You know, Absolutely. I mean, I would love to take a playwriting class. I, I do. I've said a million times, every single thing I've ever written leads to the next thing, regardless of, you know, what platform it's on, whether it's a column, whether it's, you know, a, a piece for the, the podcast or whether it's fiction, like, it's all going somewhere, you know, it's may not be obvious. It may seem to other people that you're doing this, but you're really understanding a good beginning, a middle and an end. And you're creating a disciplined writing life and you're putting words to paper and you're putting that out there and you're accepting critique. And, you know, that's all really valuable to get to the next level and to get to get published or to get wherever you want to get. You, you need to be able to do all those things. Oh, absolutely. Tell us a little bit then about the first book. Um, and for anyone who hasn't read it, please go read it immediately. But tell us a little bit about um, about your work. Give us the elevator pitch and then lead us through your next few books and what you've learned from each one successively to where you are now. Sure. Oh, this is fun. It's a fun exercise. Yeah. I mean, when I started writing fiction, I I had a couple things that I had already figured out. Um, I'd sort of figured out who I was, like what my voice was. 
because I'd had Satellite Sisters, I'd had this long running column in Working Mother called The Chaos Chronicles about my life as a working mother. Like, I, I understood what was interesting to me. And because we had so much feedback from the radio show, I also kind of knew what was interesting to other women. Like I had a little focus group, basically. I would never say to anyone, write to a focus group, but I also found like, okay, for me, this is what my niche is going to be. I wanted to write the kind of books that I like to read. And those books had, you know, they were fun. They had a, uh, they were, they had a plot that moved. There was pacing. I liked books with a little bit of romance. I liked books with a little bit of history where maybe I'd learned something. And I liked books about modern contemporary women. Um, at the time I read almost zero historical fiction, was not into that at all. So, um, I thought, okay, that's what, well, that's what I'd like to write. I'd like to write books that, uh, reflect modern women that are funny, that have a little bit of romance, a little bit of history and a plot that moves. Um, but I actually thought that there was a lot of women's fiction out there that was described as funny. That wasn't really that funny. So <laughs> this is the overconfidence law. This is where overconfidence comes in because I was like, <laughs> I could go right in that slot because this is cute, but it's not LOL. I mean, it's not, it's not that funny. So I thought if I can figure out a way to get into that niche, that would be a good slot for me. I, I, you know, wasn't looking to write uh, War and Peace. I was just looking to write an entertaining book um, that I would like to read. And um, so my first book was Helen of Pasadena. I, I planned a series of three books because one book wasn't enough when I hadn't written any. And the first one was Helen of Pasadena. And it was a book about um, a contemporary woman being inspired by a historical woman. That was sort of the premise I set up for these, this trilogy. And so Helen of Pasadena was about it was a social satire sat in my current hometown of Pasadena, which I thought was a good place for fiction because I thought it had not been exploited. I was sort of surprised. You know, there's a lot of women's fiction that's at New York, of course, or the Outer Banks or Nantucket. You know, there are certain pockets of of uh, the geography that women's fiction gets set in. But I thought, you know, Pasadena is like this super traditional town. Everyone's heard of it because of the Rose Parade, but it's pretty unusual for a city. It's big enough. It's multicultural. It has new money and old money. It has a lot of good tensions here. So I said, I said it in Pasadena and it was about a woman who at age 40 found out that her husband was not only having an affair, but he had also sort of um, lost all their money. And then he was um, plowed over by a Rose Parade float. So that was, so boom, social satire. Uh, and so that, uh, right there, that was like the opening chapter. And then, so Helen has to kind of reinvent herself. She has to go back to school. She's in this highly competitive, you know, place where people are judge themselves by where their kids get into high school. And she has to figure that all out. And, and, you know, she has to kind of reclaim herself. So that's what Helen and Pasadena was about. And it was, you know, at the end of the book, I was like, oh, I reinvented myself too. Now I'm a novelist. You know, I mean, it was really, it was like, I solved my own problem with my own fiction. Uh, so, um, that, you know, that was, that was Helen. And then the second book in that series was a book called Elizabeth, the first wife. And that had a woman who was a Shakespeare professor. Um, and it has a lot of Shakespeare in it. So it starts here in Pasadena. She teaches at the community college here. And her ex-husband, who is now a very famous action star, comes back and says, I'm, I want to do this avant-garde production of A Midsummer Night's Dream at the Ashland Shakespeare Festival. Uh, you know, will you be the dramaturge, basically? And so 
So she does that. And that, you know, so that has a, a really fun Shakespeare storyline. And that was, that was, I loved writing that because it was just like little magazine bits and things like that. It, as if Elizabeth was writing a relationship book based on the work of William Shakespeare. So that has a, that has a lot of mixed writing in it, which I enjoy doing and it has theater and it's, it's fun. It's a family story. Um, that's, I do love that book actually. <laughs> I have to say, not that you have favorite children, but I don't know. I liked it. Uh, and then, then I kind of took a left field. I had the opportunity to w- move to William Morrow. And so, um, I wrote the Sweeney sisters in 2018. That was a book, um, because you had asked about pitch and spec. Um, so I had already written this book. It was just a manuscript. I'd written this one and, um, my agent took it out, found a, found an editor at Morrow that liked it. And so the editor said, you definitely want to buy the Paris book, but does she have one about sisters and maybe sisters with a secret? So this is, you know, a great position to be in Mara that to have an editor actually tell you what she wants the book to be, to be about. It's like, oh, my God, thank you. It's just it's the best because then you don't have to just like make up stuff. You can you actually like, oh, my gosh, someone hands you like an assignment and you can execute on it. And um, the catch was I had to pitch in an hour. So I had an hour. Uh, my agent's like, okay, you're going to talk to her an hour. Do you think you could cook up a book about sisters with a secret in an hour? And I did. Wait, wait, wait. Okay. Let's pause here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sisters mm-hmm. with a secret. So, hmm. Tell me first, why sisters with a secret? Like, what was, what was, where did this come from? So, you know, the sisters are pretty popular. Think about like the sh- sh- bookshelves, you know, shelves you see in a bookstore, right? A lot of books about sisters. People are fascinated by sisters. We have found that doing satellite sisters. Like conceptually, people are interested in them. It's either because they have sisters or they and they relate to sisters and like how they interact with their sisters, or it's because they don't have sisters and always want to know what it was like to have sisters. And so, you know, the the editorial calendar at a publishing house, they kind of know what their holes are in terms of content. And I think she was trying to fill a very specific hole. Like, oh, we have a, we have a, you know, a heavy romance book and we have a this book and we have that book. Oh, we should have a sister's book that, for the summer. And I think that's literally what it was, you know. And, um, but then it, you know, it was with a secret. I don't know. That was the editor's note. And I think it was natural that she would sort of give that assignment to me because by then I had been doing satellite sisters, you know, for almost two decades. And so, in a sense, I was a professional sister. Like we had talked about sisters, written about sisterhood, had sister experts on. Like I had developed satellite sisters not once but twice for TV with various production companies in Los Angeles as sitcoms. So, uh, you know, I had a lot of notes and a lot of pitch notes and a lot of, a lot of character build out from that kind of stuff. So, um, so it wasn't, it was pretty, it, it didn't surprise me that she asked me to, do you have a book about sisters? Um, but, uh, but I think that's where, you know, that's where experience comes into play. If, if, if my first publisher had said, do you have a book about sisters? I would have said, no, I just wrote this other book about Helen. I don't, I got nothing. I got nothing. But now I understood after writing three books, how a novel comes together, how you put a novel together, what a pitch document looks like, you know, what are the elements that are going to make some a story big enough to last 
you know, 300 pages. It's very different that what's going to make us, you know, a good column. Uh, you know, it's a completely different set of, um, set of requirements. So, so I really like, I went back to those TV documents and I pulled out a bunch of files and I'm like, okay, okay, I'm going to ditch this, ditch this. I got these three sisters. Okie doke. Got that. Okay. I, where am I going to set this book? Well, I know there's a, a bias in the publishing business towards the East Coast. Uh, they're very confused by book set other than <laughs> the East Coast and they, they just don't understand the rest of the country. That's fine. That's fine. So I was like, well, I grew up in Connecticut. I'm going to set this one in Connecticut. Great. Okay. Check. I know they like books about books. So I made the father an author, a famous author. Okay. And then I needed the secret and I went to, I remembered a, a Facebook post from our satellite sisters Facebook group about somebody who, um, had, it was three adults in the picture and they're like, we met our new brother this weekend. We're not going to go into a lot of details, but thanks to an over the counter DNA test, you know, here we are siblings. And I, I, you know, and, and we have a very nice corner of the internet. So all the satellite sisters and misters were like, yay, that's so great. And I was thinking, oh, that sounds terrible. Like, I just thought, my God, that would be the worst. But I already have seven siblings. I don't want another one showing up. I don't want to think about my parents' sex life. Like, I don't want any of that. And so that, right? So that was the story. You know, I pulled those things together, and that's what I pitched in an hour to her. And they bought it spec. I mean, I did have to very quickly do a two-pager and then a ten-pager by the end of Two weeks after I pitched, I had a 20 page outline for the book. Um, and that's what they bought. So, but it was very quick, completely different than my other books. Oh my gosh. That, yeah. But that's experience. That's a hundred percent experience. You know, <laughs> someday you'll be able to do that. I, I, I believe in you. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That sounds insane and very impressive. <laughs> yeah. Well, what was really insane was when they said, we'd like to bring out the Sweeney sisters first. And I was like, oh, darn, I have this whole other book completely written. You know, so then I, just, I was like, what? So then I sit down and write it. So that's that's why this book, The Lost and Found in Paris, has taken nine years to come to fruition. Some of it was me and my schedule and life and kids and family and health and others. was It was just the publishing business. So, so yeah, that book came out in 2020. Oh my gosh. Tell us about that book and then we'll, or about, uh, Lost and Found in Paris. And sure. then, um, well, yeah, start there. Tell us about okay. that. Okay. <laughs> so this one is essentially the third book in that series, Helen Elizabeth. And this was originally called Joan of Art. So it's a book about uh, a young woman. She's 31. Um, she is a assistant curator at a museum here in Pasadena. Um, and she happens to be the product of two famous parents. I really wanted to take a look at fame in this book. And um, because I live in Los Angeles, we're just constantly fame adjacent. You know, you just never know like, oh, it, did I go to high school with that guy? Oh, no, it's Adam Scott. I didn't go to high school with him. You know, you see people at like Banana Republic, it throws you off. Or you go to like your kids lacrosse game and you're like, is that the entire cast of NCIS Los Angeles over there? Yes, it is. Zell Cool J, Chris O'Donnell, and the blonde guy. And they all apparently have kids on this lacrosse team. You know, it's just a weird place to live sometimes. Like, there's always the possibility of fame wherever you go. And so, uh, and that intrigues me. And I thought that would make like a good layer of the novel. 
Um, but I was particularly interested in what, how weird it must be to grow up with famous parents. Like what a very different life you must have if your parents are famous. Uh, so, um, which is different than being rich. Sometimes they're rich and famous, but fame is its own thing. So, so I started to build out this character of Joan, who was in her early thirties. Her father is a light and space artist. Her mother is a supermodel because, you know, it's fiction. You can do that. You can make them whatever you want. So, um, but she loses her dad in 9-11 and that sets her on the course for about a decade of her life where she just makes choices she probably would not have made had had her father not died. And so she gets to 31 and things have sort of taken a turn for the worse uh, with the marriage and, and all her career is going nowhere. And she just sort of took this job because it was the easiest thing to take after her father's death. So she she has one little nugget of her job. She does art currying. She carries pieces of artwork from her museum to other museums or to private buyers. So her boss hands her like a bone and says, hey, we have a buyer who's interested in this piece about it's a Joan of Arc piece about uh, uh, in Paris. So can you take that to Paris? Um, and it's, it looks like it's going to be an easy sale. And so she gets to Paris. Things happen. Laura, mistakes are made. Wine is drunk. OK, men, th- things happen. And the artwork goes missing. And so that starts Joan on this treasure hunt, basically to find this piece of art before she has to tell her bosses at the museum. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's a wild ride. (laughs) Right. You can make it up. You just make it up. I love it. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. And maybe in a bit we'll hear a little bit from Lost and Found in Paris. But first, let's go back. Let's go way back to motherhood and talk mm. about um, whether you've always wanted to be a mother. Oh, that's a, oh boy. That's a fun question. I mean, I guess yeah, I, don't so. field. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I guess so. I guess I did. I mean, I, I, I think I'm more, I'm less surprised that I'm a mother and more surprised that I'm married to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we'll start there. Start with marriage. The whole package seems just unexpected. Like, I still still think, uh, did he pick the right girl? I just, so, um, yeah, so I, yeah, I married, you know, I was very happy in my, in my late 20s and I met a guy and we, we were engaged within a couple of months and married within 10 months. So, uh, and so that, I, I don't recommend that. I mean, we got very lucky. It's been 29 years now. We're good. But, um, but that still surprises me. I really thought, well, I guess I'll just be single. I didn't bother me. And so once I, I thought, oh, okay, I guess I'll be a mother. So I guess I did always want to be a mother. I will say this about um, being a working mom. So I'm Gen X. I'm, uh, and my, my sisters and my sisters-in-law are boomers. And, but they were really kind of the first generation of women who, we're forced to believe that they could have it all, you know. Uh, and so I watched my sister and my sister-in-law um, juggle motherhood and their careers and figure out what worked for them and what didn't work and full time and part time and half time and full time. And and they were really role models for me. So I, I felt like I could do it because I had seen my sister, Julie, and my sister-in-law, Mary, you know, do it just ahead of me. And. It was when I say it, it was so new. This whole concept of being a working mother, like in the early 80s, it was pretty new. Like these women were really trailblazers. And there was 
uh, there was a lot of chit chat about it, but there wasn't really any support from anybody. You know, they were getting a lot of lip service, but they really had to figure out how to make things happen on their own. They didn't have human resources departments that cared. It wasn't it wasn't something that people said, oh, look at us. We have a, a flex time program here. You'll love working here. No, no, it was like you can have the babies and show up, but we don't want to hear anything about it. And so um and so, you know, sadly still is like that in some places, but um but at least I had seen them do it. So it so when I decided to have kids, it didn't there wasn't any part of me that thought, well, I'm just gonna put my life aside and raise these kids. And and at the time I was to say my boys were born in um ninety uh ninety-five and ninety-eight. The mommy wars were in full bloom. I mean, I, I think that's like a cultural thing that maybe your generation for, has, I don't know if you've forgotten or you're aware, but it was like women had to choose sides, stay at home or working mom. It was like we were armed for battle. It was perpetrated in magazines and on morning shows. It just felt like you had to pick your side and stay there. And it was you really had to stake the ground. And it was crazy because what I've learned over the years is that there's just so much flexibility between those two groups. Like, okay, some of you may work, but then, but then they're going to, for whatever reason, decide to stay home and the at home moms are going to go, Oh gosh, I need, we need more money or we need health insurance or we need a bigger house. Okay. I'm going to go back to work. Like this idea that it was one or the other and we were bashing, but it really felt that way. It felt like you had to like, Take a, make a choice. And I was like, well, I want to keep working. I believe in that. I think it can be done. I, I don't ever want to be in a super vulnerable position where I couldn't support my children if something happened to my partner. So that was it. I mean, I, I, I had kids and I, I just plugged along. Yeah, definitely. Tell me a little bit more about once you had your kids and the logistics of, Holding down. So I know the writing came a little bit later, but you had yeah. the podcast and you had a creative yeah. um, passion at that time. So tell me a little yeah. bit again about that early period of, of having kids and having work and having marriage and all of the things. How did you I've given up hard. I've given up on people. I've given up on asking how to find balance because I think that's yeah. impossible. Yeah, I think. Yeah. I, I mean, I really lived by the saying, you can have it all, just not all at the same time. I really, I really absorbed that. That was kind of fresh and new. And when I found that, I'm like, mm, okay. But I did, um, I was working freelance. I was working freelance production in Los Angeles. I was screenwriting, on, trying to sell screenplays on the side. So when you're freelance, you don't have any, you have zero say in your schedule. It's like 14 hours a day on or off. Or I was doing still a lot of work for Nike in Portland or, you know, being sent to, places like, you know, the working for the NBA or Major League Baseball, I was doing things that were not family friendly at all. And for which you could not um, hire childcare. You know, you, you either need to hire full time childcare, which I really didn't need or part it just was impossible. So I did start saying a no to a lot of that. And I started kind of lining up my ducks. I'm like, okay, well, just going to have to figure out what's next. So I'll be mainly at home. But then, you know, right when I had my first child, we started to develop satellite sisters pretty early on. So by the time my second child was born, we were finally ready to go. And I was seven months old when we recorded our first episode of the show. And that I just did. um, I I had help two days a week because that's all we could afford. 
Uh, and I worked really strange hours when we started to do Satellite Sisters because my sister Julie lived in Thailand. And she worked really. And the other sisters lived in New York City. So, of course, the New York sisters got, like, nice, juicy, easy time zones. And Julie and I, like, I got up at 4 a.m. and went to the studio a couple days a week at 4 a.m. So we recorded our show from, like, 4.30 to 6.30 in the morning. And then I would come home and then my husband would go to work. It was a lot of that, a lot of terrible hours, a lot of early mornings. Um, and we did that for a couple of years uh, with part-time child care trying to trying to balance that. And in 2001, uh, Satellite Sisters wrote a book. We had an opportunity to write a book for Penguin Putnam. And I was the, the editor, the lead sister on the book. But thank goodness my editor in New York was a night owl. So I would put the kids to bed at like eight and then we'd get on the phone and we'd start to edit the pieces because she was up. She would work from like 11 to one and I would work from eight to 10. I mean, it was a lot of terrible hours. I would like to say that it wasn't, but it was. It was. Yeah, do what you got to do, right? <laughs> yeah. And so then by the time we got to gig on the radio, then I was like, okay, I can afford full-time childcare. Uh, and, and there was, there was, there was, there was the best decision. I mean, there was no way I could have done it. My husband also works a lot of hours. There was just enough travel in my job that I needed someone in the house all the time, you know, to, to maintain that. So, but that was a commitment and, um, but I'm glad we did that. It, it made, it did, um, relieved, there's so much stress around childcare. I'm so sorry for everyone going through it. I just, my heart breaks. <laughs> just, you almost never get over it. It's like, you know how people have those dreams where they like they forgot to write the paper on a Sunday night to hand in? I think working mothers have that dream about like the babysitter calling sick and you just, there's so much stress around childcare. It's, um, it's unbelievable. You know, uh, it's just unbelievable. So, um, and you don't kind of realize that till you're out of it. But, um, yeah, then, then, I, then we had full time help and that was, uh, that, that made things manageable. But I, again, Super compartmentalized, super scheduled. Like I wanted, you know, just we didn't over schedule our kids, which is something I don't hear a lot about as advice. But um, we did not sign them up for eight million sports when they were little or eight million lessons. We kept it really simple. The routine at home was very, very simple to cut down on the stress of what it was like to have two working parents and, and two kids. I mean, they could play one sport at a time. I don't want you to think that we locked them in their rooms. Laura. But, you know, kids here in California, they were like, well, I'm swimming and then I'm going to golf lessons and then I have a double header. And I, I just, I didn't know how people like, I mean, my son took violin for like six hours and he's like, I hate it. I'm like, okie doke. That's fine. We're done. I mean, didn't totally <laughs> if they hate it forget it then don't do it you don't have to do it <laughs> and yeah, that's I mean, that advice yeah no that's great everyone keeps asking me what my daughter is signed up for for the summer and I'm like am I supposed to sign her up for something I don't know it's so much pressure and it's and yeah. I, it's it's incredible I know if you're not in it you won't understand that but I remember people like shaking their heads, like your son's not playing organized basketball by age six. You know, he's going to fall behind. I was like, fall behind. He's the shortest kid in the class. He is already behind on the basketball. He's six two now. Thank you very much. He's six two. He's totally fine. And you know what? When he 
when we signed him up at age eight, he was excellent at basketball. So it didn't really matter. But you don't know that. At the, you have no perspective. You think all these things matter. And that's, <laughs> but, um, you know, but that's, people's home lives can be pretty chaotic. So we really, and I can't say that we did a lot of socializing either. I mean, because I, when we were on the radio, my call time on Saturday mornings, we went live at 6 a.m., uh, so I had to get up at 4.30 every Saturday as well. So, yeah, we did nothing. Oof, those were bad years. <laughs> no, I, mean, I love my job, but, yeah, we weren't staying out late. We weren't partying late Saturday night. We just had it. We kept the routine at home as simple as we could. And, that, you know, for five or six years, that made a really big difference. Yeah, no, that sounds like actually it's really wonderful advice, especially I think during coming out of knock on wood, a global pandemic where the last couple of years have been by ne- by necessity simple. And right. it's kind of like now there's this pressure that now that there's things available again to do all the things to crank it up. Right. I'm sure. To crank it up, right. Right. So it's yeah. kind of, it's nice to hear that like simple is actually okay and maybe beneficial in the end. Yeah. Right. And they're fine. I mean, life gets, and they're fine. Yeah. yeah, they're fine. Yeah, they they manage <laughs> to figure things out. They're both employed and fine. <laughs> yeah, they went to college. They they're fine. They were fine. They were fine. Yeah, even yeah. if they didn't play basketball at two, they're fine. No, they did not. Um, have they read your work? You know, it's funny. They they haven't read a lot of it because some of it was just sort of weird and inappropriate because there's sex in the book and like with teenage boys, that's weird. But the other day. Uh, my 24 year old is a, he's freelance here. He's a freelance photo assistant in Los Angeles. So, you know, some days he works and some days he doesn't. So I came home from an event I was speaking at and he just was reading my book on the couch. He goes, well, I decided to pick it up and read it. And so he, that was the first one he had read. And they've listened to my podcast for years and they've come to events of mine where I speak. So they're super supportive, but actually reading the books, they just, well, my older son doesn't really read. <laughs> so, But my younger son's a huge reader. So he read it and enjoyed it. And I, I think particularly because um, when I, after I sold Lost and Found in Paris, I, w- I went to Paris uh, once the book was written, I actually went and sort of double checked, you know, did I get Paris right? Because it had been like two decades since I'd been there. And he, cause he happened to be studying abroad. So I met him and we went to Paris together. So he was there for a lot of the research for the book. So he, he had fun reading it. But well, they, that's really sweet. Yeah. You know what's fun though is just in terms of the, the long haul, both of them are, um, visual artists. So, uh, they're both in the photo and film business here. And even though they're not writers, they, they are freelancers. And I, and my husband has like a regular job. He puts on a suit and tie and goes to work every day. Again, also helpful, you know, that he has health insurance. Um, so, but I think they learned that you can make a creative life, even if it doesn't look like a corporate life from me, you know, I, because there is a lot of pressure at the other end of your, child's life, college and everything, get a real job, get a real job. You can't make a living as a writer. You can't make, oh, you know, my older son went to art school and people like get a giant chuckle out of that. Like, oh, oh, art school, you're going to be supporting him. No, no, he's fine. He's a professional photographer here in Los Angeles. He owns a studio and he figured it out because I, I do think my creative career provided at least some sort of model for them to, to figure out that they could do that, that they 
they didn't have to take a corporate job if they didn't want to. And they didn't. <laughs> I love that. So I think actually this is a good moment. If you would like to read us a few pages from Lost in Shawn in Paris. Sure. Yeah. And I will solo you in a second when you're ready so that you have the whole screen to yourself. It's just the, um, if I can see the pages, Laura. Okay. No, I can. I can. I can. Okay. I'm just going to read like the first couple of pages. How about that? Sounds Okay. Here we go. Lost and found in Paris. This is Pasadena, February 2011. My father always said that beginnings and endings were cliches. They couldn't help but be, with beginnings being bright and new, and even the best of endings being painful in some way. He was right, of course. Still, a cliche can crush. Had I known what was going to happen, I wouldn't have spent my last 20 minutes of ignorant bliss talking about fruit. I would have had a drink and reapplied my lipstick for a little Chanel courage, as my mother calls it, but I was oblivious. So I carried on about produce. One of the themes clearly defined in this piece of in this piece is hierarchy, power and privilege through the fruits and vegetables. May though the fruits and vegetables may appear to be strewn chaotically upon the table in bowls or in baskets, even upon the ground. The artist has actually imposed a well-defined order. They are arranged based on their value and rarity. A sea of glazed eyes greeted me, my observation. The well-suited locals who composed my listening audience were probably more interested in the food and drink outside on the patio than the pictures of food and drink inside the Wallace Aston Museum. The museum, known as the Wham, was a jewel box of art treasures from the private collection of industrialist Wallace Aston and his actress wife, Ashley Simmons Aston, ranging from European masters, 20th century abstracts, to Asian pieces spanning 2,000 years. Unlike some larger museums that use traveling exhibits with mass appeal to draw in visitors, at the Wham, it was the permanent collection that was the star. It was breathtaking to walk through the galleries, knowing that you were looking at the private collection on the grandest scale. Manet, Cezanne, Picasso, Van Gogh, Goya, Rembrandt, Zuberon, Rodin, Degas, Frankenthaler, Fragonard, Nevelson, Kandinsky, Noguchi, Rusha, Brancusi, Warhol, a greatest hits and then some all displayed in a compact, well-composed space, recently updated and turbocharged with fresh windows and new gardens. I loved it there. A clean, brilliant little burst of genius tucked in between the freeways. That's a couple of pages. That's a page and a half. So you get a sense of Joan. That's her, uh, you know, to taking a tour around the museum right before her uh, husband arrives and drops a bombshell. Ooh. <laughs> I love it. What are you working on now? Um, so, you know, the good news is that I signed a new two book deal in January with William Morrow. So that's great. Um, this is the first time, Laura, that I've ever had to publicize one book and write another. Normally, I sort of work on an every other year book schedule, but this is, um, you know, one a year. And so <laughs> finding that very challenging. So this next book is called uh, The Marriage Sabbatical, and it's about a couple who's been married for 20 plus years um, and their kids are on their junior abroad and they're going to take a work sabbatical. And at the last minute, they decide to take separate sabbaticals. The wife, she does not want to do what the husband wants to do. She wants to do her own thing because she's given up so much of her life with kids 
and her career is not gone the way she thought it was going to be because she, you know, gave up a lot for the kids and she doesn't want to do what he wants to do. And so they agree to go their separate ways for a year. And it's kind of an anything goes situation. So, (laughs) so, I mean, all bets are off. Do whatever you want and we'll, we'll meet back in a year. And, um, so that's, that's the book. That's, that's what I'm working on. I really wanted to do a book about marriage. Uh, and in a lot of my books, like someone either dies or divorce happens. I was like, I'd like to write a book where like the marriage hangs together in some form because I think marriages do hang together in some form, but I think there's a lot of different ways to be married. Is what I would. <laughs> no, oh my gosh! I wish we we had more time to talk about that because I have been, I have this little fantasy of doing the sabbatical, the year long sabbatical, or even like a weekend long sabbatical from. Yeah, and I think that started when I turned forty just last okay. year. Okay. And yeah. at forty, I was like, okay, like I have my child. I'm only going to have one child. I have the one child. I have my husband who I've been with for twenty years. Um. My career is sort of like, you know, on the path that I intended it to be on. And I'm like, so now I want to do something different and crazy. And how, what can that be? But that wouldn't blow up my whole life, if that makes sense. Right. Right. Yeah. So I yeah. love the idea of a sabbatical where it's mutually agreed upon. And then you just yeah. kind of explore all the things you never got to explore. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Well, it also includes other people, though. I love that. So, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I see what I see what you're saying. Okay. Because usually when people are like, oh. <laughs> no, no, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was funny because my editor, uh, at William Morrow, she's in her 40s and she's been like, has in her small Brooklyn apartment with her two kids. And she said, she goes, no, I was asking which book she wanted me to write first because the other one is, is different. It's a social satire about a wedding. And she said, oh, definitely the marriage sabbatical. I think a lot of people have come out of this pandemic thinking, just like a break from you for a year. And then I'll be back. I'm trying to capture that. I'm trying to capture that. Yeah. No, and I love that it sounds like there's a coming back at the end, right? Like that you can explore things within a marriage and still move forward. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it, I mean, I, I think I know how it ends, but sometimes when you get to the end, you don't know. It, like things change, but I think I know how it ends. I don't want to give it away, but I, I think, I, I just think marriage is an interesting topic and that we, we only, you know, if, I just think it, it really evolves. I think, I think you have one view of marriage when you're just married and this is the way it's always going to be. And, you know, you take those wedding vows and you think for better or worse, you're like, well, it'll be for better like 99% of the time. So how hard is this vow? <laughs> and, whew, and then in comes life and all kinds of things, kids or unemployment or illness or just, you know, your mother-in-law, you don't know, you don't know what's going to happen. So yeah. Well, yep. and you, the person, change a lot in the course of yes. 10, 20, 30 years. And then it's kind of like, well, who am I outside of this partnership? And yes. I love the idea of exploring that. So that sounds really fascinating. Yes, that's that's what I'm that's what I'm working on. But I am finding it very hard, even me, to compartmentalize the book promotion, the podcast, the new book. So uh, oh, I'm sure. But um, I'm trying not to freak out. 
That's what I would say. (laughs) 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 Really trying. No, no. And when the new book comes out, we'll have you back on because I want to hear about that one. Okay. Yeah. We'll dish. We'll dish for sure. Absolutely. Thank you so much. This was such a pleasure to talk to you. And I I enjoyed it. These are all questions I haven't been asked or thought about in a long time. So you're doing a service out there for creative women everywhere. That's fantastic. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, as are you. So I appreciate you. And thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Goodbye. And thank you all for joining us as well. It's been a pleasure as always. If you've enjoyed the episode and uh, Writer Mother Monster in general, please consider becoming a patron or patroness to help me keep the podcast going. In the meantime, um, enjoy some past episodes, re-listen to this one, watch it wherever you um, watch the video, whether it's YouTube or on the website, writermothermonster.com. And we will see you next week. Bye, everybody.